Good morning, church. Joy to be with you and to worship with you this morning. Welcome here. If you might be new with us this morning, really glad you're here. My name is Rusty, and I'm grateful it's a new year. Uh, There's some hard things in 2023. In some ways, um, one of the tougher years I've lived in my 42 years. That's a long time, isn't it? It's a real long time. One of my favorite statements in the Bible are the words of Jesus near the end when He says, Behold, I make all things new. That's what I love as we, as we move forward into this year. We have a God who is able to come into every situation, to every person, and to, uh, and to bring that which is good and new. And He has for us a hope and He has for us a future. And I'm excited to see what God has in store for me, for my family, and for this church family here in this coming year. Um, at the beginning of this year, we are beginning a new series about the beginning by looking at a book called Beginning. That's the name of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible opens. You maybe know that. Maybe you read that. Maybe you got that far in your Bible reading plan before you fell out of practice. The Hebrews, the Jews, they had a, a, a practice of titling their books with the first word of the book. So, Genesis call, got called Bereshith, which in Hebrew is beginning. That's where we get the name Genesis, because Genesis is just the Latin translation of that word, beginning. It comes from the Greek word gegensathai or something like that, which means to be born. Genesis is a book about beginnings. That's what it's called. That's a really appropriate name because really it's, um, as, as the title of the series here expresses, Genesis is the story of the beginning of everything. Everything. All of creation, the stars, the earth, mankind, animals, men, women, sex, marriage, sin, conflict, everything. So, um, we're going to take some time at the beginning of this year to do a deep dive into the beginning. Over the next, I don't know how long this is going to take. I mean, this might take us through into spring, maybe even close to summer. But uh, together, we're going to open our Bibles to the first 11 chapters of Genesis over the course of a number of months here. And we're going to do a deep dive into the beginning of everything for a few reasons, which I'll get at here in a minute. But Genesis... If you're not too familiar with this book, and, and you know, if you are fairly new to the faith, or, or maybe you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, and you're brand new to the Bible, this is a great series for you to be a part of, because this is going to lay the foundation for everything that is to come. This is going to address um, the biggest questions that we all have about everything. And so, this is a great time to be with us as we study together. So, Genesis has 50 chapters. It's kind of divided into two parts, verses or chapters 1 to 11, and then 12 to 50, kind of two distinct sections. And in chapter 12, that's when Abraham arrives on the scene, the father of our faith. This was when the story kind of narrows in on this one man, this one family, which God chooses and creates out of them a people with whom he establishes a covenant to bring about his redemption. 
of the world that He has made. But, but prior to that, the first 11 chapters of Genesis is what kind of scholars, historians call primeval history. There's more human history covered in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, okay? There's more history here than in all of this. It's called the universal history because it doesn't just follow one man, one family, one nation. It really is about the whole world, all creation, all mankind. It has some of the most iconic stories in the Bible. If you go into our kids' nursery, you'll see a whole wall mural of the Garden of Eden with a naked man and woman there, which is kind of interesting. I mean, hair and animals appropriately placed, but I don't think anyone would have thought of that. We've got a naked man and woman on the wall in our children's nursery. How does that fit with plan to protect? I don't know. That just came to me. <laughs> you know, the story of creation, the Garden of Eden, the first man, the first woman, the fall into sin, the story, that iconic story of the flood and Noah and the ark and that tower that, that the human beings try to build up to reach God. There's so many iconic stories in these first 11 chapters and stories that, if we're going to be honest, bring a lot of questions and confusions to, to many people, maybe including yourself. There might be some things contained in these 11 chapters that have been kind of obstacles for you in your faith. Little nagging questions, doubts that, that, that come from these chapters here that you have not been able to resolve. I mean, if we're honest, there's a lot of controversial confusion stuff in here, questions we bring to these chapters, like how did God make the world anyway? What was that process? What does it mean that God took a rib out of the man to make a woman? What's that all about? And what about this talking snake? I don't know if I can just accept a talking snake. You know, there's a guy named David. He might be tuning in right now. Hey, David, if he's watching online from Timmins, Ontario. But in the church I used to pastor in Blind River, Ontario, there was a family there. When I moved there, they had a, a son who was a young adult, wasn't living there at the time. But I got to know him a little bit, and just a really intelligent, thoughtful guy, just had a tough time with the Christian faith, you know, and tough time with the idea of God. And uh, I hadn't had any contact with him in seven years over Christmas break. He emails me just out of the blue. And he updates me on his life. He talks about how he just had his first child. And when he beheld his son and he gazed upon him and, 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 and he's been trying to make sense of, of the world around him, he's, he's been yearning for answers to a lot of big questions and it's caused him to look to God and to, to, to have a spiritual awakening and, and to begin building a relationship with God and finding answers. And so he was chronicling or kind of sharing with me some of this journey he's been on, which is super exciting. But then he said, I, he said to me, but I'll be honest, I have trouble with some of the supernatural stuff, like that talking snake, he said. He said, what that, what's that about? Can you help me with that? I said, why, why don't you tune in on Sunday mornings to New Life Church Stonewall on YouTube, so if he's with us, hey, hey David, um, and, and maybe, uh, maybe this will be helpful to him and maybe it will be helpful to you because I'm going to guess you've got questions. Maybe those questions are doubts. Maybe those doubts become an impediment to being fully devoted to Jesus. I don't know. 
But I really think that this is going to be a valuable time for us as we go through these first 11 really important chapters for, um, for four reasons, really, I think that we want to do this. And so, we're not going to open our Bibles to a certain verse this morning and really start digging deep uh, because we're going to do that next week with Genesis 1-1 and we're going to start going through this story together. What I want to do this morning is really just kind of set the scene a little bit, introduce us to these chapters and what it is we're going to do and why we're going to do this and, and just give you four reasons why we're going to take so much time to do this and we're going to take these chapters so seriously. And, and the first reason is this. It's that um, you can't understand the story without knowing the beginning. Have you ever um, entered a conversation after it's already started in the church foyer with someone and you thought you knew what they were talking about? And you started to chime in and then you got, there was just like this awkward quietness and these weird looks. And then you realize this is not exactly what I thought it was. Or maybe you left that conversation thinking you knew what that was about and you and you shared something with someone else only to find out that you spread rumors that weren't true because you didn't actually hear the story from the beginning. Or maybe like me, you have a habit of joining the movie after it's already started. My wife hates this. I have this bad habit of coming down 10 minutes into a movie and then just asking a lot of questions the rest of the way, and finding myself confused, and then getting to the end of the movie and still being perplexed. And I mean, the beginning of a story is so important to know the story, to understand it properly. You know, the Bible is a story. Yeah, yeah, there's a bunch of stories, but it is one story. That's why the Bible comes from the Greek word biblos, which just means book. The name of the book of the Bible is book. Okay? It's one story. It's the story of God's relentless pursuit to restore creation to Himself from beginning to end. It's this one story. So, in, if, if, you're, if you're in the Bible at different places, there are so many connections back to the beginning, Right? And, and you realize you have to understand the beginning to know what Jesus is talking about or Paul is talking about. And so, you know, if you get to the very end of the Bible, if you've ever gotten that far and you read through the Bible in a year program, good for you. If you want to start that, it's not too late at the beginning of the year. At the Resource Center, we've got uh, Bible reading plans that you can grab on your way out. They might be useful to you. But at the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22... My, my heading is Eden Restored. Now, the headings in your Bible were not a part of. That's, you know, someone added those in there just as a helpful guide. But when the Apostle John was given this vision that he describes here, this is, this is how he closes the book of Revelation, which closes the Bible. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 uh, crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be this in the city, and the servants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign with Him forever and ever. And that's how the story ends. And... and if you've ever read the beginning, you, you know that that description is just dripping 
with imagery and allusions to the beginning. And you can't understand what he's talking about if you don't know how the story starts. So we see this over and over again that the first 11 chapters of the Bible give us a foundation that prepares us for the rest and helps us make sense of the rest of the story of the Scripture. And so Paul will say in Romans chapter 5, he'll talk about Jesus as the second Adam. And you can't even understand what he's talking about, the significance of what it means for Jesus to be the second Adam if you don't know anything about the first Adam. What do you mean Jesus is the second Adam? What does it mean for me? You know, Eric and I, we've been reading through the book of Acts as we've begun the year, and we have a little book that kind of summarizes the readings. And so we were in Acts chapter 2 a few days ago, which gives the story of Pentecost. Remember the Holy Spirit coming down? Uh, tongues of fire on those first Christians gathered, and and, uh, they were able to kind of speak all of these tongues which were heard by the crowds around them in ways that they could understand, and they heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus proclaimed, and many were saved and and, and came a part of the people of God, the church, on that day, and it's an incredible account. And and as I'm reading this reflection on, on that story in our Bible guide, talks about how this is Uh, this is all about God kind of undoing what was done at the Tower of Babel when God confused their speech and scattered them and how Pentecost is God's answer to the scattering. It is now the gathering instead of the confusion. It's the unifying. I had never, had you thought of that? I asked that to Dan and he's like, oh yeah, I knew that when I was six. That's what he said to me. He's like, you're hearing that for the first time, Rusty? And you're a lead pastor. You went to seminary. Hmm, interesting. He didn't say that out loud, but I could see it in his face. <laughs> so uh, maybe you got that, but I, I still discover these things, which just helps me understand what's happening here. There are so many connections that if you don't know how the story starts, you're not going to be able to fully, properly understand the rest of the story. And so it's so important to build that strong foundation with this foundational Um, these foundational chapters at the beginning. So that's the first reason. We're going to take all this time because it's going to equip you to better understand the rest of the Scriptures, the story. The second reason that we're going to take time to look at the beginning uh, is that this story, the story of the beginning, makes sense of all other stories, all other stories in the world, including your story. It makes sense of the world that you see and experience and your own experiences, you know, we, we all have this desire to make sense of things. We have this innate desire, this innate yearning to know who we are, where we come from. Some of you, maybe you're uh, are adopted, and, and maybe you didn't know your adopted, uh, your, your birth mother or family at all, and you've kind of gone through life with all these questions about, where do you come from? Who are you? Like, what's your ancestry? Because we have this sense that where we come from, our origins give us some sort of rootedness in the world, some meaning, some significance. And so people search for answers about their origins. They do that with, you know, now obviously DNA kits. It's become very popular. Ancestry.com, a lot of people doing research. My brother-in-law, guy that uh, Travis married my, uh, or Erica's sister, a couple years ago, he's African-American, or so, you know, we all kind of thought, because... He looks kind of African-American, but we don't really know. He's adopted, him and his little brother, doesn't remember, doesn't know who his mom was. Um, so he kind of gone through life with all these questions about where does he come from? Who is he? 
And, and so just in the last two years, he took a DNA test because he kind of looks like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, you know. He's a, he's a chiseled, good-looking guy. And, um, you know, not that I'm envious at all, but, um, um, you know, I thought he kind of has that face like he almost looks like maybe a little bit Samoan, but we're not, we don't really know. He doesn't know. Um, so he took this DNA test, and it was very interesting. So he found out like he was like 75% West African. So, yeah. He gave him some sense of, hey, this is where he comes from. This is his background. And we all have this yearning for that, right? And so many of us, we've, we, we've done maybe a, a deep dive into family history to find our origins. Um, I've, I've done a little bit of that because I'm kind of curious. Um, yeah, like, where do I come from? So I, I'm a Hildebrand, which means that, you know, I'm a German Mennonite. So I, I did a little bit of research into my family history, and so um, I'm a Hildebrand, Hebert, Plett, Dirksen. And if you're in the know, you know that makes me a purebred Mennonite. <laughs> purebred. I'm not bragging, right? I've got schmote fat running in my veins. You cut me, it bleeds schmote fat. I did research. So, you know, my grandpa was a, was a poor farmer. My, my great-grandpa was a poor farmer. My great-great-grandpa was a poor farmer. My great-great-grandpa was a poor farmer that came from the Ukraine. His dad was a poor farmer. As far back as I could find, it was just poor farmers. I was hoping for something a little more interesting, like, am I heir to the German throne or something like that? And I just don't know it. And um, I did discover, though, that, that Pope St. Gregory VII, he was Pope in the year about 1080. I, I actually think he's the one that established the Gregorian calendar. He was one of the more significant popes. Uh, he was a Hildebrand. And I didn't know there were Hildebrands before there were Mennonites, but apparently there were. And I thought, oh, this, I bet you I'm related. I bet you I'm a descendant of Pope St. Gregory VII. So I was pretty proud of that. And someone... Reminded me that popes don't have children, and um, <laughs> I said, some do, some did. So I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, we have this yearning, right? Because there's a lot of people, we just they look at themselves and they don't know who they are, right? Um, there's a website that I've seen a few times where people will post pictures of tools or objects that are foreign. They have no idea what this is, and then people will chime in in the know and tell them what that thing is. And so there, I was looking at that the other day. So any idea what this is? Any guesses? Looks like drug paraphernalia. What is that? Make coins? How did I not think of that? Oh, yeah, it's a button maker. So that's, that's a button mold, so make buttons. That's, would you have any idea what that is? That's an ancient torture device that, that wives would use on... No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> that's an egg peeler. It's an egg. I don't know exactly how that would work. But any idea what this is? Looks like a space object. Okay. This is, a, this is an old-fashioned juicer. They would tip it upside down, and it would be like a tripod on top, top of a glass. It would sit underneath it, and they would juice, and it would just drip into the glass. Kind of cool, actually. What about this? 
That looks like a torture device for sure. That's a, a paint can resealer lid. It just reseals paint cans. Yeah, kind of, it's quite a contraption just to do that. What about this? That's a, that's a candle wick trimmer. Back when they made candles, that's kind of interesting. And this, any idea? A person's poor scalp, I tell you. That's a fish, that's a fish scaler. They use that to descale fish. What about this? What's that? That's people? My family. No, that's just, I'm not going to lie, it's a stock photo from the internet, okay? Yeah, those are people, but like, really, like, what is that? What is that? You know, there's a lot of people, they have no idea. A lot of people searching for answers to that very question. In fact, you know, if, if you kind of read stuff that's, you know, out in, um, on, on, or listening to stuff on YouTube or um, online, there's a lot of people these days, thinkers and academics and social commentators, sociologists, psychologists, talking about how the Western world is adrift. That the Western world is facing an existential crisis. That's the cause of this underlying angst that so many people feel. They don't even know why they feel the angst, the anxiety. They, they can't point it to a certain circumstance. They just feel this underlying anxiety that's pervasive in our society, especially in the West. And more and more people, these are secular people. They, they don't even necessarily, you know, adhere to a certain faith. But they're coming to understand the, the reason that the Western world is facing such an existential crisis. And one of the reasons for this, this pervasive anxiety is that people lack a story. They don't know the story they're in. They don't know the story bigger than their own life. And if you don't know the story bigger than your own personal story, you don't know how you fit into anything around you. You don't know how to make sense of your own story. We lack a story. The, the word for that, uh, the literary word is a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is an overarching story that kind of makes sense of all the other stories. And, and in our society, our culture, we, we really lack that and we, we probably never have before. We lack a story that grounds us, that orients us, that gives us a sense of how to make sense of the world around us to understand who we are because everybody is looking for answers to those fundamental questions that they always have been and always will, right? Like, where did I come from? Where did we come from? Why am I here? Why is there something instead of nothing? And did somebody make that something? And if somebody made that something, who is that something? What is that something or someone like? What does it mean to be human? Why does it hurt to be human? What does it mean a man and not a woman, or a man and a woman and not a man? That's the other way. Why are we sexual beings? What is marriage anyway? Why do we have a tough time getting along? Why, why can human beings be, be, be responsible for such beautiful, wonderful things, and at the same time be responsible for the, for the, for the greatest evil and to commit the greatest atrocities? Why is our world so broken? Is there any hope for the world? Is it always going to be like this? How can it possibly change? All of these big fundamental questions that we all ask, even if we've never verbalized it or articulated it. 
Genesis 1 to 11 addresses those most fundamental questions. It is the story that makes sense of all stories, including our own stories. It is the story that helps us make sense of the world that we live in and to give us some idea of how we are to relate to one another and to this world and ultimately to God. So as we go through these chapters, my, my hope and belief is for us it will help us orient ourselves and make better sense of who we are and who we are in relation to one another, our world, and to God. You know, the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That one statement, so simple, yet so profound, it cries out that the universe is not a cosmic accident. You are not an accident. You are not an accident. It cries out, there is meaning. So, that's the second reason that we're going to spend all this time in these few chapters. It's because this is the story that helps us make sense of all stories, including our own. The third reason we're going to look at it is this. This is, isn't just a story. This is God's telling of the story. God's telling of the story. Because there are other versions of the story. There are other attempts to answer all of those questions that I just rattled off. You know, even back in the days when this was first put down on paper or papyrus or whatever, thousands of years ago, you know, there were other cultures around the, the, the nation of Israel, the Egyptians and the Babylonians, and they all had their story that attempted to answer all of those questions. But who tells this story? Well, one answer might be, well, Maybe it was Moses. Tradition says Moses wrote much of Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books of the Bible called the books of Moses or the law of Moses or the Pentateuch. Tradition is that Moses recorded much of that and some of that he certainly did, but, but we're not 100% sure because Genesis never says, you know, the narrator never names himself or herself. It's just not there. But the tradition is that it's Moses, so when we talk about it, we might talk about it as being Moses. Whoever it was, while human hands recorded these words, they are not simply the result of human reflection on the world and human deduction. They are divine in origin. That's, that's what we believe. Because and that, that's what Jesus believed. Because look at what he says in Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 4 and 5. Because he's going to quote now from Genesis 1 and 2. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, that's a quotation, and said, and now he's going to quote Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So he quotes the words verbatim from Genesis chapter 2 and who does Jesus attribute those words to? Well, here he says, and said. Who's the and said? The Creator. The Creator made the male and female and said. Now, if you go back to Genesis 2, it's not God. It doesn't say, and God said. This is just Moses or whoever's narrating. These are that person's words, and yet Jesus says, God said. These are God's very words Himself. 
So, so, so we believe that Genesis, as, as we believe all of what we have here in the Bible, is divine revelation from God. It's not just human reflection, human deduction. It is God revealing Himself, revealing what he, who He is and what He has done. And so Paul will say in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 16, in talking to Timothy, he says, And how from infancy you know the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So he wasn't talking about the New Testament. It didn't exist then. He was talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is able, all of that, to make you wise for salvation in Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed. It's been inspired by Him. It comes from Him, even even though a human hand would have recorded this at some point on a piece of paper or parchment. The the origin of those words are from God Himself, revealed by Him. So so, So Genesis 1 through 11 has divine authorship, which means it has divine authority. So when we come to these chapters, we don't go, oh, this is interesting, or, oh, this is insightful, but we go, we believe, as Christians, we believe that this actually is true. We believe this is true because we believe that this is none other than God's revelation of Himself and what He has done. It is true, but let me add this, it is true in all that it intends to teach. And I think it's important to state that because, you know, we do have a habit of bringing to the text, whether it's maybe especially the beginning of the Bible with the account of creation and other places, but, but, but at any point in the Bible, we, we, we have a habit of bringing our own questions and wanting to maybe impose our own questions onto the Bible, right? And, and maybe kind of demand that the Bible ask the questions that we bring to it when maybe it's not always addressing the questions that we might be bringing. But we have to ask ourselves, what, it, what does it intend to teach? What is God saying here? What He is saying is true in all that He intends to teach. So we have to be careful that we don't impose questions on the text to try to make it answer questions it's not trying to answer. Right? And so Genesis, uh, it, it's not unscientific, But we also have to be careful and acknowledge that Genesis is not a scientific textbook either. Although it does have huge scientific ramifications, its primary purpose is not to detail the process by which God made the world, which is a really interesting question for us modern people. And we have all sorts of questions we might have. That's not its primary purpose. It is not an apologetic against modern scientific claims. It's an apologetic against other rival understandings of God and the world in the the culture, in the setting in which it was given. And so we need to understand, and we will understand, we we will look at what, what does this mean in its context, in the genre it's written, in the culture it's given. That will help us understand in what way it's true. Because it's true in all that it intends to teach. And so, if you're just hoping, man, I can hardly wait till a week or two from now when he's going to tell us how old the earth is. I'm not that smart. 
So I just want to give you, because I don't want you to be disappointed. We, we will address different understandings, maybe why people, different people might have see different things, have different interpretations about some of those questions, but we will not get fixated on, because those are not the primary questions that the text is there to address. It's who is God, what does it mean to be man, right? And, and, how, and how, do, how do we relate to God in the world He has made? It's, it's purpose is not primarily scientific, it's primarily theological, because, like I said, there were other stories, even in the days when, um, when this was given. The predominant culture was the Babylonians. I mean, they're pervasive. Everybody was, was affected. They all knew the Babylonian story, the Babylonian worldview, which was that there were a bunch of gods, Marduk and Tiamat, and Marduk was fighting Tiamat. Marduk slew the god Tiamat, cut Tiamat in half, and half of Tiamat Marduk made the earth, the other half of, of Tiamat, God, uh, Marduk made the heavens. And then the gods were kind of getting tired. The gods hated to do work. So they thought, well, let's make human beings to do all the work so the gods don't have to do any work. So this is exactly what comes out of the Babylonian creation story called the Enuma Elish. This is what it says. I shall compact blood. This is Marduk the chief God. I shall compact blood and I shall cause bones to be. I shall make stand a human being. Let man, let man be its name. I shall create humankind and they shall bear the God's burden that the gods may rest. There's gods. The world is made in conflict and human beings are just serfs. They're just servants to do all the hard work so that God doesn't have to do it. There was another major culture there, the Akkadians. They had a story that was very similar but I find it a little bit more interesting. Um, it opens uh, with a whole bunch of gods. There were higher gods, there were lower gods. Now there was a conflict um, that arose and the lower gods went on strike <laughs> against the, the, the most powerful gods. Uh, the, and the most powerful god was represented by a guy named Enlil. Um, the lower gods, they had been digging irrig irrigation canals and they were getting tired of their work. So they went and they actually picketed in Leal's, the chief god's residence, <laughs> with the result that that great god determined to create alternative workers to get these lower gods off his back. So Belit Eli, the birth goddess, in, according, you know, in, in their understanding of the pantheon of gods, was directed to build the first human beings to, quote, bear the yoke, uh, the task of the gods, let them assume the drudgery of the gods. And it's in the midst of all of that that God breaks in with His story. Not gods, plural, God. Not the world coming out, out of, war, of chaos and conflict, but being created with purpose, ration, reason, order design. Not human beings just be being a bunch of serfs, schmucks that were made by the more powerful gods to do all the hard work so that the gods could just take it easy. No. Human beings made in God's image to actually have fellowship, communion with God. And so when we see how this story was different, we start to understand what God is trying to say to them and to us. And so we'll explore more of that as we 
move forward. This is God's telling of the story. That's the third reason we have to take it seriously. And the last is this. Uh, We're going to spend so much time in these opening chapters of Genesis because it will help us know Jesus better and love Him more. Do you want to know Jesus better and do you want to love Him more? I do. Well, what does Genesis have to do with Jesus? I thought Jesus showed up here. Genesis has everything to do with Jesus. Everything. I mean, Genesis and those opening chapters, they're all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. That's why when John tells his account of Jesus' life, John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things were made through Him and apart from Him nothing was made that has been made or something like that. That's how John begins the story of Jesus referencing back to Genesis chapter 1 showing how Jesus is really the fulfillment Genesis 3, chapter 15, you have something called the Proto-Euangelion. I don't even know what language that is. Is that Greek? It's just one of those fancy theological terms that means the first gospel, proto, the prototype of the gospel. After mankind has fallen into sin, God comes and He pronounces a judgment and a curse. He puts a curse on the serpent. This is what he says to the serpent, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So already here, God at the very beginning is saying, I'm going to send an offspring of the woman, and you, serpent, whoever the serpent is, you are going to strike his heel. You're going to wound him, but he's going to crush you. He's going to destroy you. And here we have the first seed, the first planting of God of His plan of redemption for the world that is just broke. And we come to understand that it's all about Jesus. And so you see in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul is writing about marriage, he's giving some instruction to husbands and wives. He he says in, in Ephesians 5 verse 31, 32, he begins by quoting, again, That statement on marriage, establishment of marriage in Genesis 2, Paul says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And he says that this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about what? Christ and the church. So he's been talking about how, you know, marriage, a relationship between a man and woman is, is, is in ways like the relationship between Christ and his church. And then he quotes the establishment, that verse on marriage from Genesis 2. And then he says, this is a profound mystery. Now, when you see that word mystery in the New Testament, it doesn't mean, hmm, we don't understand this. It's a mystery. That's not what mystery means in the Bible, okay? When they said it's a mystery, they're talking about something that had been hidden that has now become revealed. So what he's saying is, up until Christ came, we didn't even really fully understand what marriage was what marriage meant. It was a mystery that has now been made known in Christ. So what he says is even marriage is all about Jesus and His people. It's about more than just a man and a woman. It's about Jesus. Everything is about Him and points to Him and is fulfilled 
in Him. And so Peter, in, in his first letter, 1 Peter 3, he talks about how Jesus is the ark. You know that ark that was in the floodwaters? Jesus is the ark. And so now you understand that this story about a flood and an ark and a door and people in the ark, this, this, isn't, just about, this isn't just about a flood and a boat. This is something that's pointing us to and helping us understand Jesus. Everything is about Jesus in these open chapters of Genesis. So as we go through it together, it's going to be fun to, just to see that. And, and I think that as we do, you're, you're going to understand Jesus better and you're going to love Him more because we're going to read Genesis as Christians. The way Christians will read this will be different than the way others will and the way Jews will who do not believe in Jesus or consider Him to be the Messiah. Right? Because now we read not just forwards, right? It's not that you just need to know the beginning to know the end. Now that we know the end, we can go back to the beginning and we can truly understand what it actually means. So as Christians, we read the Bible both forwards and we read the Bible backwards to understand the full meaning that God has given to us in it. So my prayer for us as we go through this together over these months, and I'm I'm just excited to dig into this with us, my prayer is that we're going to grow in our understanding of the world we live in. Why it is the way it is. What that means for us. How we relate to it. How we relate to God. My, my hope is that it will make, help us make more sense of our lives and that it will help us understand Jesus better and love Him more. And I think it will. So, Next week, Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Come back. But between now and then, I just want you to do a couple of things. I want you to go home and find a few minutes this week. Maybe you want to do this as a family if you're with others. Read Genesis 1 through 11. Just read it through. Those 11 chapters. And if there are any questions that you have had regarding anything in those chapters... Um, or any questions that come to your confusions as you read it, at our resource center, we've got, we've got, a, we've got a box there with a slot, and we have little papers uh, to, to submit sermon questions. And what I would love, love for you to do in your own life, and if you're in a life group, I know life groups who are meeting this week, if you're, if you're kind of uh, going a little bit deeper in the sermon, you'll have opportunity to talk about whatever questions you might have. Um, what I want you to do is I want you to share those questions, to jot it down, to put it in the box, because, uh, or email them to me. Because as we receive those questions, those things for you that you find maybe obstacles or confusing, um, uh, you know, my hope is that over this time we'll, we will be able to address much of that and just bring greater understanding, greater clarity, and deeper faith. That's my prayer for us as we enter into this together. Let's pray. Father, we... We thank you that you are a God of revelation. You are a God who doesn't just um, depend on us finding you, searching for you, but you are a God who has searched us out. You are a God who has made yourself known to us. Um, You're a God that gives answers to these really fundamental questions that we all ask. And so I thank you, Lord, that that is who you are. You're a revealing God.
and you're a redeeming God. We just thank you that through your son that you have, you have restored us. You are restoring us. That you have done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to you. And we just thank you, Lord, for the life that we have through your son, Jesus. And you're a sustaining God. God, I just love that you don't just come and, and reveal yourself and then redeem us and kind of, you know, pick us up off the ground and set us up again and dust us off and say, okay, you have a second chance. Don't mess it up this time. But you're a God who, who doesn't just make us new, but you're the one that empowers us. You travel through life with us and you go before us. And by your spirit, you sustain our faith. And Lord, you just provide everything that we need to travel this path that you have us on. So God, we just thank you that you are who you are. And as we go through your word together, these really precious, important chapters at the beginning of your story, I just pray, God, that you would give us just deeper insight into you, who you are and the world you have made in such a way that um, our faith in you, our trust in you grows and that our love for you grows as well. All this we pray in your son's name. Amen.